How are we doing this morning? Grateful? Yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. If you were with us last week, we kicked off a two-week mini-series on gratitude, which really just stemmed from an entire month. Uh, you heard us reference practice of the month for next month, this past, this most recent month. The one that we are in was gratitude. And so we've been pressing into this all month as a church family. But last week, Brian specifically on Sunday morning, pressed into the fact that we have so much to be grateful for. And as followers of Jesus, his desire for us is to express that, right? To express that to him in prayer, to remind ourselves of that daily, to vocalize that to those around us. And what Brian pointed to last week is that that is easier said than done, because there are certainly things in our world that inhibit us from either feeling that inwardly or even expressing that outwardly. Sometimes it's affluence, right? We live in in the West, we have quite a lot, and so that can sometimes blind us to the blessings of life. Sometimes it's pride, right? We live in a world that values hard work, and that certainly is not a bad thing, Um, but it can create challenges in our life of gratitude when we think everything in our lives exists just because we worked for it. Sometimes it's who we hang around with, right? We know that the people we surround ourselves with will shape the person that we ultimately become. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise that if we're constantly hearing people express ingratitude, the likely it will happen to us as well. And the fourth thing was circumstances. Um, sometimes we, we just go through difficult seasons of life or difficult cha- challenges that seem to outweigh the blessings of life. And so when that's the case, it can be very hard to express or to even inwardly feel gratitude. And that last thing, our circumstances, is what I kind of want to press in to this morning because of all the things on that list, I would say our circumstances are often the things that are most out of our control, right? Um, Sometimes it's circumstances that arise out of someone else's actions or words. Um, Sometimes it's working and dealing with challenging coworkers or health concerns or paying bills or losing a job, right? These are things that are kind of out of our control. Sometimes it's your car breaking down. I unfortunately felt the effects of that one this week. You'd think that a 2006 Pontiac Pursuit would work just fine in 2022. (laughs) Apparently, old cars break down. Who knew? But life presents these challenges that we often feel aren't aren't that fair. And, And often that's the case. Often that's the case. Often these things are not the results of anything we've done. It's just things that have come to us. And it's so easy to allow those situations. As Brian pointed to last week, we have the choice between gratitude and ingratitude. And it's so easy to allow those situations to just push us into ingratitude. And so my question for us this morning is what do we do about that? Right? What do we do about that? Right? How do we be the people that God's calling us to be in the midst of those difficult situations that want to just force us into ingratitude? And I don't have a ton of life experience, but one thing I have learned rather quickly is that there aren't too many seasons of life where you won't have some external circumstance wanting to push you into ingratitude, right? 
often the time when one thing seems to resolve itself, something else seems to pop up. And so that means that waiting for the difficult situ situation to leave, that's when we'll start to be grateful, is not really a great plan. Right? We need to learn how to give thanks in the midst of all of that, or in the words of Paul, to give thanks in all circumstances. And so I've called this message, if we go to the next slide, I've called this message the not-so-secret to the grateful heart. Because while sometimes it seems like a secret, like how the heck do you go about doing that? Um, I believe this wonderful book, uh, through the words of Jesus and the testimony of the apostles, uh, they actually make it quite clear uh, in my eyes. And so there's a few places you could turn in this book as to discovering this not-so-secret to the grateful heart. But the words of Paul are always a good place to go. Not because he particularly preached long sermons or wrote extensively on how or why to be grateful, but the fact that he just is a grateful person. And so in his writing, it always just seems to rise to the surface. And so if you're unfamiliar with who Paul is, I'll let you in on that. For those of you who aren't aware, Paul is a man who at one point was adamantly against the, the, the Jesus movement, but having encountered the risen Jesus, completely changed his, the course of his life and committed his life to going around and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, the story of Jesus. Sometimes we refer to that as the gospel message. And because he did that, he didn't actually necessarily live the easiest of lives. In, in his writing in 2 Corinthians, he dwells on some of the external circumstances or challenges that have faced him in the midst of his life. And he writes, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own people, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger from the city, in danger in the country, in danger at the sea, in danger of false believers. Paul's life was not smooth sailing. Um, of, again, Paul is, is recorded as the author of many of the books in our New Testament. As little as four and as, more, as most as seven of them, he wrote while sitting in prison. And despite that, he wrote things like this in Ephesians. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Similarly, in the book of, of Philippians, he writes, I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. To be quite transparent, these are completely random verses I just pulled from Paul's writing because they're everywhere. Right? Time and time again, you can see how truly grateful and thankful Paul is, regardless of what's going on in his life. And so I don't, I don't bring that up to just say, be more like Paul, or, you know what, our lives aren't actually that bad. So we can probably find a way to be grateful, because Paul found a way. I, I bring it up because, simply to say that if there is some secret to navigating these situations with a grateful heart, Paul clearly had it. Um, he clearly knew something that possibly some of us here don't know. Um, he knew something that maybe some of us have lost sight of. 
or possibly something that when we are going through those difficult situations, we have just lost sight of. And so what I'd love to do this morning is to work through some of Paul's writing in the book of Colossians. Um, And what I want to do is to just read through it. Um, There are four places in his writing in Colossians where he mentions something along the lines of giving thanks or expressing gratitude. And I just want to read through those four passages and just see if we can identify any prevailing themes that seem to come up in the way Paul gives thanks himself or encourages others to give thanks. And so we're going to cover a bit of ground today. So if you have a physical Bible, prepare to flip some pages um, or scroll some fingers or look at the screen. Any are viable options. So starting in uh, Colossians 1, 3 to 6, Paul writes this. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all his people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true word of the gospel that has come to you. And so my question is here, what exactly is Paul giving thanks for? Well, He's giving thanks for the faith they have in Christ Jesus. He's giving thanks for the love they have for his people. And he's giving thanks for the hope that they have in their eternal inheritance. So basically, he's grateful that the story of Jesus, or again, that word we use, the gospel message or the good news of Jesus Christ, has reached them and that they have received it. Right? And having received it, that it's actually taking visible impacts on the way they're living their lives primarily by the way they show love to other people. And so in response to knowing that that's happening, Paul gives thanks. A few verses later, the next time we see Paul talking about gratitude, in verse 12 to 14, he says this. Um, He's listing the ways in which he's, he's praying for them, and one of the things he's praying for them for is this. He says, I pray that you give joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his Son, whom he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so I ask that same question. What, what here in this passage is Paul really giving thanks for, encouraging his readers to give thanks for? Very simply, it's God's grace, right? He says that God has qualified us to share in an inheritance, right? Something that we didn't earn, but something that he, he fulfilled on our behalf, having qualified us to, by paying the punishment for our sins. And, and in case we missed that, Paul refers to the benefits of having being qualified as an inheritance, right? And we know an inheritance isn't something you earn. An inheritance is something that you're gifted simply by a certain relationship you have with someone else. And so the inheritance that he has qualified us for, as identified in this passage, is light, uh, life in his kingdom, where we see the kingdom of light, or the kingdom of his son. Sometimes we'll see the kingdom of God. Um, it's all talking about the same thing. And, and life in his kingdom really just means living life as it was originally designed to be lived, right? With God as our authority, in joyful submission to his will, and I add joyful because we don't like the word submission, but when that submission is in relation to the God 
who loves us and wants nothing but the best for us, then I very confidently add on that word joyful submission to his will and living in deep fellowship with him and his people. That's what living in the kingdom is. And that's what Paul is giving thanks for here. There's a 19th century theologian by the name of Thomas Erskine, and he says, theology is grace and ethics is gratitude. Right? What we believe is rooted in God's grace and how we choose to live our lives is just an expression of gratitude about that. And he goes on to say, if God's actions and attitude towards his people have been characterized by grace, our response to him in life and conduct, as well as in thought and word, should be characterized by gratitude. Nothing less is fitting, considering how he has qualified us to share in an inheritance of his holy people. And so in response to that, Paul, in speaking to the people in Colossae, invites them to give joyful thanks. The next passage, Paul, will fast forward to chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. Again, this is the next time Paul is touching on something relating to gratitude, and he says this. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thanksgiving. And so I ask that similar question as we've asked previously. What here is Paul telling them or encouraging them to give thanks for? In my shortened, condensed version, it's life with God. Right? The opportunity, having been qualified, to now live our lives in Jesus and with Jesus. And so that, that previous passage we looked at touched on the forgiveness of sins and how he has qualified us. And in this passage, we're getting a taste of, of what's beyond that, almost like the results of that forgiveness. And so um, if you've grown up in the church uh, for a while, this is a generalization, but often when we think gospel message or the good news of Jesus Christ, our mind immediately goes to forgiveness, which is not a bad thing, right? Jesus came. He, there's, he paid the punishment for my sin by dying on a cross um, and bestowed upon me this forgiveness of my sins and wiped my slate clean. And all of that is true. That is central to the gospel message. But there's something else to that. That's not the entirety of it. In, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, my good friend Dallas Willard commented on a bumper sticker that he once saw that said, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And in seeing that bumper sticker, he writes this. Just forgiven, eh? I'm sorry, no way, that's my Canadianness. <laughs> just forgiven. <laughs> is there really, pardon me, is that really all there is to being a Christian? The gift of eternal life comes down to that. It's quite a retreat from being an eternal citizen of the kingdom of God. And so, my intention in sharing that, I don't want you to hear me wrong, is not to diminish forgiveness by all means. That is so fundamental to the good news of Jesus Christ. But forgiveness was needed for something else to happen, right? It was almost like a means to an end, right? God didn't, didn't send his son to die on a cross to pay the punishment for my sin just for the sake of doing it, right? He came to earth paid the penalty for my sins on that cross, 
so that I could live life with him, right? As the gospel writer John puts it, so I can live life to the full or to live it more abundantly as a member of his family and as a part of his kingdom. And because he actually did that, I now get to experience the full effects of that, right? Through my faith in him, I get to live life with God right now, tomorrow, and the day after, and the day after, and for the rest of eternity. I get to live my life with God. And so in response to that, Paul tells his readers that the most appropriate response is to give thanks, to overflow with thanksgiving. One final passage Paul touches on thanksgiving, and that is found in Colossians 3, 15 to 17, where he says this, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so one final time I'll ask that same question. What is Paul encouraging them to give thanks for? And my short condensed version is he's telling them to give thanks for the peace of Christ, as we see right at the top of that passage. The peace of Christ. So what is the peace of Christ? We see the word peace quite a bit in the Bible, if you read through it. In the Old Testament, we see it in the Hebrew word shalom. And in the New Testament, we see it in the Greek word erene. And the most simple translation of that word, or either of those words, is wholeness or completion. To be whole or to be complete. And so, for example, in Job, those of you who are doing our version Bible plan, we just read through the thrilling book of Job. Um, in Job, he says, you'll know that your tent is shalom when you've taken stock and noticed that nothing is missing. Um, you also see it be referred to in, per- in terms of like personal well-being. So, when David goes to visit his brothers on the battlefield prior to fighting Goliath, he asks about their shalom. And so the main idea is that when something breaks down or is out of alignment, your shalom breaks down and your life is no longer whole or complete and something needs to happen for that shalom to come to make kind of restoration or wholeness and completion. And so, for example, in 1 Kings, when Solomon finishes the temple... It says that he has brought shalom. Or in Exodus 22, in the law of the the Jewish law, when it says, if your animal goes astray and causes damage to your neighbor's house, you bring shalom by providing um, the payment for the damages. And the same is true in relationships, right? To, To reconcile or to heal some kind of brokenness to a relationship, that's to bring peace, bring shalom. Um, and so what both the Old Testament and the New Testament point us to is the fact that Jesus was the arrival of Shalom, or in the Greek, Irene. Right? Through his death and his resurrection, he created wholeness or completion between God and humanity that we were unable to provide ourselves because of our captivity to sin. So Jesus didn't just come to proclaim peace, to tell us, be more peaceful. 
He came to actually be our peace and to be our wholeness and our completion that we really, really needed. And so if you continue to, to look at that, that word shalom or arene in the biblical text, one thing you find, which is really cool, is that when two people or two groups of people who previously had some kind of brokenness in their relationship, when they make shalom, it doesn't just say that they just stop fighting or that they, they can tolerate each other now. It says that they actually start to work together for each other's benefit. And so when it comes to shalom in regards to the shalom and the wholeness and the completion and the peace that Christ created for us, it doesn't just mean that God will now tolerate us, right? It means that we actually get to live our lives with him, working for him, working with him, and reaping all of the benefits that come to life with, to life abundantly, life to the full. And so in response to that, in response to all of that, to the peace of Christ, Paul encourages his people. The only response is to give joyful thanks. So that's Colossians. At least that's Colossians in regards to what Paul touches on in regards to gratitude. And those of you who are acute observers or those of you who like to critique's a wrong word, but um, we'll go with that, those preaching on a Sunday morning, you might be thinking... I'm pretty sure this guy just used like four verses to basically communicate the same thing four times. And if you actually think that that's what I'm doing, I'd say, you are an acute observer. That's exactly what I did. Right? I just repeated myself four times. And normally I would try to avoid that. Um, but this morning I'm feeling like I'm at the liberty and the mercy of the text because that's kind of what Paul does in Colossians. He keeps bringing us back to the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think when we, we clue into that, I think it does reveal that not-so-secret to the grateful heart. It's that gratitude is never far removed from the gospel message. It's never far removed from the gospel message and from the good news of Jesus Christ. And so when Paul gives thanks himself, or when Paul encourages others to give thanks, he can't help but loop back to the same thing Right? The good news of Jesus Christ, because you can't separate those two things. And so when we dwell on that, um, that's not to say that we aren't to give thanks to God for the blessings of life, right? For the roof over our heads, for the jobs that He's blessed us with, for the beautiful fiancés you may have. Um, we have to give thanks to God for all of it. But the two kind of go hand in hand, right? When we express, we express gratitude for the grace of God, it often just leads us into expressing gratitude for the blessings. And when we express grat gratitude for the blessings of life, it often leads us into expressing gratitude for the grace of God. So they work beautifully together as the reason we should practice both. But we can't allow our life of gratitude to only be about the blessings, right? We need the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ to be right at the center of it. Because when that's the case, our life of gratitude is never at risk of wavering based on the latest challenge that seems to present itself to us, right? When someone hurts us, when the bills start to rack up, when we're dealing with that challenging coworker, when we lose our job, when we receive that tough medical news, 
when our 2006 Pontiac pursuit uncharacteristically breaks down, right? We have a defense against allowing those things to just push us into ingratitude because those situations play no influence on what God has done for us, what he continues to do in and through us, and what he promises the rest of eternity is going to be like for those who have received him. And Paul is numero uno in terms of an example of someone who refuses to allow those challenges of life to just push him into ingratitude. And so for us, how can I, Jacob Pirro, prevent that from happening to me? How can I prevent myself from falling into ingratitude amongst all the challenges of life? I think there's a helpful question we can ask ourselves when we notice that happening. And it's funny, I wrote this question out and then my car breaks down this week. And I, I had to ask myself this question a few times um, and found it tremendously helpful. Have I separated his grace from my gratitude? Have I just disassociated those two things? Um, have I lost sight of where my gratitude truly is rooted? Um, am I consciously giving thanks for his grace or have I just kind of moved on from it? Because I think that's something we're actually prone to doing. Um, we're not going to go there, but in the book of Galatians, Paul's writing to a church, and he encourages, encourages them not to drift away from the gospel message. And by drift away, he didn't mean reject or doubt or question. He meant drift away in terms of thinking that there's something else to move on to, right? Almost as if, like, the gospel message is um, a, a story of, that we use to convert people to Christianity, um, but that's not what it is, right? The gospel message is something we learn to live into and embrace each and every day of our lives. And spiritual maturity is not moving on to bigger and better things. It's becoming more and more rooted in that message. And so, yes, Easter just passed us by. Um, but the truths of the gospel message are no more true or no more relevant or more, no more transformational on some weekend in April than it is in May or June or July or August or any other month of the year. And so if your question, your answer to that question is yes, and you want to be someone who is unwaveringly grateful, then my suggestion to you is to give thanks to God for things that don't waver, right? Because we know that the things we do do something to us, and so the more we express gratitude for unwavering truths, and blessings, then the more we can have a heart that is unwaveringly grateful. We've looked at quite a bit of passages of scripture this morning, and as I close our time together, there's one more, if you'll indulge me, there's one more I want to look at. Um, and it's not a new passage, it's actually a passage we looked at last week with Brian, found in Luke 17. And so for those of you who weren't with us, we won't turn there, but I'll just share the story. Jesus is traveling, and these ten men approach him who have leprosy. And what it says is Jesus cleanses them and sends them to the temple to meet with the priests to deem them whether they're now pure, which was part of the um, job description of the priests at that time. And then one of the ten re returns to Jesus and thanks him. And in response to this happening, Jesus says, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Why didn't they come back to give thanks? And so what Brian pointed us to last week was the fact that Jesus is calling us to live lives of gratitude. 
which he is. And what I'd like to close our time with today is just pointing to the fact and to the idea of what Jesus actually did for those ten men. Right? Because on the surface, it seems quite simple. He cleansed them and healed them of leprosy. There's a little bit more to it than that. Because leprosy today is not the same condition as leprosy, what we see in, in the Bible, which in the Greek is referred to as lepra. Right? So for us, leprosy is a serious medical condition. Um, but back then, lepra, while it certainly had physical um, characteristics and effects, it actually wasn't the physicalness of lepra that was their primary concern. For them, lepra was a primary concern because it made them ritually impure. We're not going to dive into the whole abundance of what the Jewish law required and meant, but very briefly, if you were deemed impure because you had leprosy back then, this is what your life looked like. You weren't able to go and worship God or hear the Torah read aloud in the temple or the synagogues because those were holy places, and you were not. You were impure, and so those two things could not mix, so you were not allowed to go there. And as we saw in that video, that was the only way to, to be able to engage in this, but they were cut off from that. You weren't even able to interact with other people because, again, your impurity could spread to other people. Not, not the disease itself, although maybe that could happen, but the impurity that came along with it would spread. And so if other people wanted to go to the temple, they couldn't interact with you because you could spread your impurity. So you're cut off from people. And so these people, these ten men that we see in the text, were exiled from their city or their hometown, from their families, and forced to live on the outskirts of society, either alone or with other people who had their impurity, unable to commune with God or to commune with his people. And then Jesus walks on the scene, and here come these ten men, these outcasts, these impure people. But Jesus doesn't actually act like a typical Jewish man would, right? He doesn't run the other way. Um, he doesn't ignore them. He actually approaches them. And, and as the text says, he cleanses them, right? And their impurity doesn't transfer to him. His purity transfers to them, which means that they were no longer impure, right? They now had full access to the temple and to the synagogues, which for them was the very dwelling place of God, and they now had full access to be in community with his people. And so while that's one isolated story in the life of Jesus, and I would encourage you to go read more of them, it's truly reflective of what his entire ministry and, and mission was in, in coming to earth, right? He came, he approached us as unworthy as we are, and he made us clean, right? And in doing so, provided a way for us to now live life with him. Right now, and tomorrow, and the day after, and for the rest of eternity. And so for those of us who have received him in faith, that is what our reality is right now. And for those of you who are not, that's the reality that God wants to give to you. And so in reflecting on all of that, I think I know what our friend Paul would encourage us to do. It would to be give joyful thanks to God. So why don't we do that right now in prayer?
Dear Lord, we come before you in this moment um, with an abundance of gratitude. Gratitude for your word and that we can open it up and that it reveals to us that we get to live life with you, that in this moment of sitting in a school, in a, pardon me, a church gym, that we get to come before you in prayer. Um, as we leave this place, that you go with us. As we wake up tomorrow and go to work, that you are with us, um, wanting us to step into life with you. And that is something that demands and deserves nothing but gratitude. And Lord, as we gather and as we leave this place, um, I pray that that would be a reality that moves from our heads to our hearts. That we know what you've done, Lord. We know that. I pray that as we continue to practice that gratitude, that that would continue to seep into our hearts um, and create in us this desire and longing um, to do nothing but show, but to give you thanks, Lord. Um, we are in no way deserving of all of what you have done to us and for us through your Son, but that's what you've done, and we get to now live in the reality of that. And so I pray that that would just overflow from us, that gratitude, seep into the relationships and the conversations we have with others, seep into our prayer life with you um, as we continue to practice gratitude together. Um, once again, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you have done for us. And I pray these things in your precious name. Amen.